welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. As renewable energy development is happening throughout the country, changes in environmental regulations and related court decisions are impacting project development. In today's episode, we engage the experts and listen in on a conversation between two experts on the latest developments impacting offshore wind development. Brooke Marcus Wahlberg is a partner at Nossaman's Austin, Texas office. Brooke has been focused on federal and state natural resource issues, particularly wildlife issues, for most of her career. Her work spans across several industries throughout the United States, including wind and solar energy, electric transmission and distribution, water infrastructure, and timber management. Brooke frequently speaks on federal natural resource issues before national audiences, including the American Wind Energy Association's annual environmental and siting conference. She co-chairs CLE International's annual Migratory Bird Treaty Act and Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act conference, and regularly guest lectures at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law on federal wildlife risk and renewable energy development. Joining Brooke today is Ed Rogenkamp, an associate at Nossaman's Washington, D.C. office. Ed has a traditional environmental practice that includes energy development, hazardous waste remediation, and environmental impact review. He has advised clients on environmental compliance for electric power generation assets, including natural gas-fired power plants and wind turbines, including offshore wind. Ed has been involved in the offshore wind industry since the days of Cape Wind, and has spoken on wildlife issues relating to offshore wind at the American Wind Energy Association's Offshore Wind Power Annual Conference. Before joining Nossaman, Ed spent several years at Sive, Paget and Rizal, an environmental boutique law firm in New York City that is heavily involved in offshore wind development in the New York Bight. On today's podcast, Brooke and Ed are joining us to discuss the latest developments that impact offshore wind energy. Thank you both for joining us today. Brooke, it's great to have you back for another episode of Engage the Experts. And Ed, we're happy to have you along for the ride today, too. Thank you, Dominic. I'm excited to be back. Thanks for bringing me in, Dominic. It's good to be here. So before we jump into the substance of today's conversation, I'd like to have both of you introduce yourselves. And if you could tell us a bit about how you both know each other. I'm Brooke Marcus Wahlberg. I'm a partner in Nossaman LLP's Austin office down here in Texas. Uh, As Dominic mentioned, I spend a lot of time on federal natural resource issues, particularly wildlife issues, and spend a lot of that time um, assisting renewable energy developers with natural resource compliance, policy issues, evaluation of federal wildlife risk, um, as well as traditional energy infrastructure and other types of development. Uh, I've been on this podcast a couple times now for an onshore wind, uh, solar, and a general renewable energy policy podcast before, and I'm excited to get back here and talk about offshore. Thanks, Brooke. We're excited to have you back. Um, Ed? Hi, my name is Ed Rovenkamp. Um, I am an associate at Nossaman LLP in our Washington, D.C. office. Uh, These days, I spend most of my time arguing about who cleans up old hazardous waste sites, but on better days, I get to help put up wind turbines. Um, Typically, that means uh, I'm working with Brooke on land-based winds to help make sure that the project is complying with the federal wildlife protection statutes. Um, But I've been involved in offshore wind for a while now. And there are a lot more statutes that come into play there. So there is a lot more complex interaction um, that I really 
love to you know geek out about and find interesting and talk about. Ed and I have been working together now for a few years on these issues, and so it's fun to get to do this with him. And with that, let's get started. Um, I know every day I'm seeing something in the news about offshore wind. And when I think about it, the engineering alone is a feat, but thinking through all the regulatory and legal aspects is equally as mind-blowing, in my opinion. Uh, today, I'm going to pick Ed's brain about what's going on with offshore wind and what are some of the regulatory and legal obstacles that offshore wind developers face and how has and how might the Biden administration influence the pace of offshore wind development. So there's a lot of ground to cover. And I know if you folks are anything like me, um, keeping up with all of this has been a challenge. So I'm excited to hear from Ed how things are going and what's been happening most recently. So I guess starting with the basics, you know, the first question is where is offshore wind really happening? It seems like offshore wind development is progressing at different paces depending on where you're at in the United States. There's East Coast development, West Coast, Great Lakes, and even I've heard some talk of Hawaii. I guess, Ed, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in these various regions? Of course, um, and that's absolutely right that there are different things going on in different places in the country. Um, offshore wind development is furthest along on the East Coast, and that's where we're seeing utility-scale projects that are about to get their final federal approvals and begin construction. It's been a long time getting here. Uh, offshore wind has been up and running in Europe for decades, uh, but in the U.S., the focus has been more on land-based wind. Uh, Cape Wind was the first proposed offshore wind project in the U.S. back in the early 2000s, uh, and that was really litigated to death over the course of several years. The first time that anywhere in the U.S. got steel in the water was with the Block Island Wind Farm. And that started construction in 2015 and started operations in 2016. Um, that's a small project. It's five turbines, six megawatts each, uh, and it's in state waters off of Rhode Island. Just last year, the first turbines in federal waters were built and went into operation off of Virginia Beach, not too far home from me, although I haven't been out to see them yet because of COVID. Um, there's only two turbines there, but they're 12 megawatts each, twice as big. And uh, Dominion Energy, the utility, is planning a much larger utility scale project in the same area called the Coastal Virginia Offshore Wind or CVAL project. And those two smaller projects are really the first step into a much larger phase of development for the industry. And that next step is utility scale development in federal waters. And right now there are several larger projects uh, ranging in size from about 150 megawatts to up over 2000 megawatts that are going through the federal approval process to go ahead with construction. There were some delays with that process during the Trump administration. Uh, but now that the Biden administration has come in, they seem to be moving ahead much more quickly. Uh, the project that is the furthest along in the permitting process is Vineyard Wind. Uh, Vineyard is a proposed 800 megawatt project. It's off of Massachusetts, south of Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and just this week, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, or BOEM, which is the lead federal agency for these projects, issued the final environmental impact statement for the project under NEPA. Um, and that NEPA analysis is for Vineyard's construction and operations plan, which is called a COM. And so that EIS um, has to be reviewed for at least 30 days once it's final. There's a public comment period, but we're expecting to see a final record of decision approving the COP sometime in April. Uh, the EIS came out March 8th. 
And that would put Vineyard on track to be in operation as early as 2023. There are several other projects on the East Coast that are not too far behind Vineyard. Um, projects off of states ranging from Massachusetts all the way down to North Carolina. Um, there was a draft EIS for one of those projects, the South Fork Wind Farm, that was put out for comment in January of this year. Um, in total, there are six of those projects that have submitted a COP to BOEM uh, and are awaiting their environmental impact analysis and their final approvals. So if BOEM starts moving forward more quickly, those projects could be in operation by 2024 or 2025, and that would represent several gigawatts of capacity. There are other projects off of the East Coast that are in earlier phases. There's a site assessment phase before the COP is drafted and, and submitted, where they analyze the wind resource and study the seabed to see where it can support turbines and things like that. Uh, there are other projects that just have a lease and they're in the planning phase. Um, that includes, for example, the second phase of Empire Wind, which just got a power purchase agreement with the state of New York. Uh, a lot of the planning in this area is being driven by some very ambitious state targets um, in the New York, New England, Mid-Atlantic region, not just for eliminating carbon from the grid from electricity generation, but for offshore wind specifically. Um, for example, New Jersey has a target of three and a half gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030 and seven and a half gigawatts by 2035. And they've got a project planned ocean wind that is going to be the first 1.1 gigawatts of that. And the reality is, you know, these states have these targets for um, eliminating uh, carbon emissions from the grid. But there's just not as much capacity for onshore renewables in those states as there is in places like Texas in the Midwest. Um, but there's this fantastic offshore resource and it's very close to the demand for electricity that are in the major coastal cities like New York. Uh, moving to the Great Lakes, um, those are further behind. There is one relatively small proposed project in state waters off of Cleveland, Ohio. That's called the Icebreaker Project. And that's run into some permitting roadblocks, but it seems to be back on track. Um, one interesting thing about the Great Lakes is that unlike the oceans, they're all state waters out to the border with Canada. So the state permitting agencies have a lot more control. For the Gulf Coast and the West Coast, those are still in the planning phases. Um, BOEM hasn't even conducted a lease auction in either place. Of those two, the West Coast is a little bit further along. There are actually two competing projects that have been proposed in state waters off of California. And in federal waters, BOEM has identified some potential lease areas and is in the process of, of finalizing the boundaries of the lease areas and setting up an auction. Hawaii is in a similar position to the West Coast where BOEM has received a couple of requests for leases and is figuring out where it may be appropriate to issue a lease for development there. That's something that's apparent to me when I listen to you describe the various stages of development across the United States is that BOEM is obviously a key regulatory agency that's involved in offshore wind development when you're in federal waters. What's also apparent is that it's not just BOEM. There's uh, several cooks in the kitchen when it comes to developing offshore wind, and it isn't restricted to just federal agencies. You mentioned some state waters and things like that. Um, can you give us an idea of the regulatory agencies that impact offshore wind development and must be considered? Absolutely. And it is a very complex web. So you're right. The key regulatory agency at the federal level is the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. 
that's an agency within the Department of Interior that manages the leasing of resources on the Outer Continental Shelf. Uh, and that's basically everything that's more than three nautical miles from shore. Uh, BOEM is the agency that decides what areas are going to be leased, which is the first step in the process. And they don't just do that for renewable energy, they do that for oil and gas development as well. Uh, a lot of us, you know, we look out to the ocean and think, okay, it's empty, you can kind of just put stuff anywhere out there. But that's really not the case. There are established shipping lanes and navigation channels. There are areas where the seabed can't support a foundation. There are areas where it's too deep to put a foundation in the seabed. There is essential fish habitat and heavily fished areas. There's critical habitat for endangered species. There are a lot of other ocean uses that have to be considered and weighed. So BOEM is the agency that takes all of that into account and tries to balance these uses when defining what areas they are going to lease for offshore wind development. And those, they then conduct an auction for those leased areas and they maintain approval authority for the plans um, for whoever leases those areas to do site assessment, to do construction and operations, and eventually to decommission the wind farms at the end of their useful life. BOEM is also the lead agency for environmental impact analysis under NEPA. And typically they prepare an environmental assessment, the lower level of NEPA review, to issue a lease and to approve a site assessment plan. But then for the construction operations plan, uh, they do the higher level of NEPA review, the EIS, uh, Environmental Impact Statement. Then there are two other really key federal agencies uh, that have significant approval authority. One is the Army Corps of Engineers, and I'm sure you're very familiar with them because of your work on land-based wind. Just like with land-based wind, they handle Clean Water Act permitting for fill that's put into navigable waters. And in the offshore area, they also grant permits under the Rivers and Harbors Act for obstructions to navigation, like wind turbines. And then there is the National Marine Fisheries Service, or NIMFS. Um, just to make that a little bit confusing, sometimes you'll see that referred to as NOAA Fisheries, uh, and OAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And NIMFS has regulatory authority over different marine resources. They manage fisheries, they also issue permits under the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act for impacts to marine mammals and marine endangered species. Um, although interestingly enough, uh, US Fish and Wildlife, which does the uh, permitting for environment, <laughs> US Fish and Wildlife, which does the permitting for endangered species like birds on land, um, they still have that regulatory authority for terrestrial species, even if you know the birds are flying over the ocean. Uh, there are a few other federal approvals that are needed, just like with land-based wind. Um, for example, the turbines are so tall that the, the FAA has to evaluate whether they pose a hazard to aircraft. Um, and EPA actually has to approve an air permit for the smokestack emissions for the, uh, the vessels that are going to be used to build the wind farm. Uh, but the big three are BOEM, NIMS, and the Army Corps of Engineers. And those three are all cooperating agencies on the EIS. And then there's a lot of onshore regulation, right? This isn't just all happening in the ocean. I think that's something that is becoming more and more relevant and, and that I'm noticing hitting the news more and more as well. 
That's right. And that is because of the interaction between two federal laws, the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act and the Submerged Lands Act. And basically those two operating together create this federal state handoff. Um, so I said earlier that everything more than three miles out is federal waters and Boehm has authority. Everything less than three miles from shore is state waters. And obviously that matters because even though the turbines are typically going to be further than three miles from shore in federal waters, the transmission line still has to get the power to land. So that last three miles of a connection is going to be primarily under state agency authority. So rather than go you know, state by state and list off all the different agencies because we'd be here all day, um, I would just say that typically there is a state environmental agency analogous to EPA that has approval authority over the impacts to state waters um, and potentially to wetlands, depending on where the transmission line comes ashore and how those are regulated in the state. Um, for example, I did a lot of work in New York with the Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, which permits impacts to tidal wetlands. Those are specifically wetlands that are affected by the ocean instead of freshwater. Uh, there may also be state-listed endangered or threatened species that aren't listed under the Federal Endangered Species Act, but are under the State Endangered Species Act. That would be a consideration within that three-mile boundary. There's typically going to be a state agency that has leasing authority analogous to Boehm's leasing authority for federal waters because those submerged lands under state waters are considered state property and they have to be leased out. That's in New York, the Office of General Services. In California, that's the State Lands Commission. Um, I mentioned that there are a couple of proposed projects in state waters in California. There, the State Lands Commission actually uh, issued a, a request for bids for two projects and is evaluating the two bids that came in. Um, then there's also typically a state agency that's responsible for utility regulation, like New York's Public Service Commission or New Jersey's Board of Public Utilities. And that would typically regulate the transmission lines, um, as well as potentially the energy generation if it's in state waters. And many states also have delegated authority under the Federal Coastal Zone Management Act. Um, some, like California, even have a dedicated agency that regulates in the coastal zone. That's the California Coastal Commission. Um, you know, I've been talking a lot with our colleague at Nossum and Bonnie Neely, who used to be one of the commissioners on that commission and, and knows all about what it's going to have to do to deal with offshore wind on the West Coast. There are even some states that are moving towards trying to have a single agency that sort of rolls up all of the state level approvals that are needed for an energy project or a transmission project. There's been some movement in that direction in, in Massachusetts and in New York. And then of course, at the local level, um, it's gonna be just like dealing with the transmission lines that you might see for you know, a traditional power plant. Those are going to be dealt with by local agencies um, with zoning and siting approval um, over those transmission lines and over the electric substations. It's a lot to wrap one's arms around. Uh, thank you, because just trying to piece all that together state by state, uh, it, it, there's a lot going on, lots and lots of cooks to go back to that idiom. So I'm going to show my bias here. Given I spend a lot of time working on species issues, my attention naturally goes to the species considerations. And I've seen articles recently about the right whale and I know you've spoken on this recently in other forums. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, if you would. 
Absolutely. Um, this is a major concern for offshore winds on the east coast. The North Atlantic right whale is a critically endangered species. They got their name because they were the right target for whalers in the 19th century. Um, if you ever got into the sea shanty craze on TikTok, that Wellerman song that went viral is about a ship hunting a right whale. Um, so they were hunted almost to extinction. Today, there are only about 300 to 400 individual right whales remaining. Out of those, there are only about 100 females. Um, females are at greater risk because of the stress of reproduction. And they're still very much threatened by human activities, especially uh, entanglement in fishing gear and vessel strikes. And the species migrates up and down the eastern seaboard. They have calving grounds to the south off of the Carolinas and Georgia and Florida where they spend time during the late winter and spring. And their key feeding grounds are off of New England and in the Gulf of Maine. And they overlap with a lot of the lease areas uh, for wind energy off of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. So with the species as endangered as it is, there is a very real argument that any significant harm to any member of the species, a take in the parlance of the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act, would jeopardize the continued existence of the species. There have been studies showing that the sustainable level of significant take, so a, a severe injury or mortality, is less than one whale a year. So under the Endangered Species Act and the MMPA, federal agencies cannot authorize or undertake any action that could jeopardize the existence of an endangered species. And NIMFS recently lost a lawsuit over their approval of the use of certain fishing gear in the lobster fishery in New England because the estimated magnitude of the take of right whales was more than what was sustainable for the species. So going forward, NIMFS is likely to be very careful in evaluating any potential impacts to the right whale, including from offshore wind. Now, wind developers have done a very good job of addressing the concerns about the impact of the right whale by agreeing to voluntary restrictions that will minimize any impacts to the whale to the point where they're negligible. Uh, for example, Vineyard has made several commitments to do things like avoid construction or pile driving during certain times of the year when the whales are likely to be in the area, to monitor for right whales um, when they're doing construction or when vessels are transiting to the wind farm, to reduce vessel speeds so that they're able to avoid right whales if they're sighted, things like that. And those voluntary commitments then become conditions of their federal approvals. With the increasing pace of wind development on the East Coast and the ongoing risks to this species, it's going to continue to be an important consideration. It's going to continue to be something that developers need to address. There is a little bit of good news. Uh, one thing is that there's been a fairly successful calving season this year. I think we're up to 16 live right whale calves that have been born this year, which is almost as many as were born in the four years from 2017 to 2020. So hopefully that larger number of calves is a positive sign for the species and, and a trend that's going to continue. But it, there's still a long way to go for the species to recover. And that means that offshore wind developers on the East Coast are going to need to carefully consider their impacts to the right whale and, and take steps to minimize them really for the foreseeable future.
Oh, thanks for explaining that, Ed. I know you've spent a lot of time looking into that. You know, I tend to do a lot of work in the Midwest on bat and avian issues related to onshore wind development and endangered species that may pass through there. So I've been following the icebreaker offshore wind farm in Lake Erie that you mentioned earlier that's um, just past Cleveland. And again, this is an example of where there's federal and state agency involvement. And in this case, where opposition is using both state and federal agency approvals uh, to oppose the project, or at least to ensure that measures are being taken to take species considerations into account. I know at one point, the Ohio Power Siting Board, um, they proposed an Ohio Siting Certificate condition that required significant curtailment for migratory birds to the extent that it threatened the viability of the project. I believe the condition, it was proposed last year, called for eight months of curtailment during the night to avoid migratory bird impacts. So you can imagine the power production impacts that turning off your turbines would have if you had them off at night for eight months. I also know the American Bird Conservancy filed a lawsuit against that project in the Federal District Court of District of Columbia um, challenging some of the process that was going on at the federal level. I think they're related to Department of Energy funding and an Army Corps of Engineer permit, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, both of those claims involve NEPA and using NEPA and the extent of analyses the agencies conducted on the impacts to birds to try to invalidate those federal approvals and therefore hopefully stop the project. Um, that, that case has been winding its way through federal district court in D.C., and in the meantime, that state siting board has backed off of that onerous condition with respect to curtailment at night. Uh, but I find it interesting to see how you know, migratory birds and bats and those sorts of considerations coupled with NEPA and the federal agency approvals and even the state agency approvals are all coming together. Um, mostly for consideration, but also for folks that really oppose projects. And I know I've seen um, some mapping that's been done at various conferences, even looking at migratory bird and bat migration patterns off the coasts um, on, the, on the East Coast to see how far out they go, how impacted are they going to be from turbines, when are they gonna be there, and what density are they gonna be there to try to understand those impacts better, which given I spend most of my days thinking about species issues, I find really fascinating. But I know there's been other sorts of impacts that have been the focus of offshore wind studies. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Um, let me quickly loop back to what you were saying about um, bird and bat impacts. These are far less studied here and, and less well known than uh, are the impacts with respect to land-based wind because offshore wind is, is new in the United States. Um, and it's more difficult to study. It's not like land-based wind where, you know, you and I have read all of those reports that talk about basically somebody walking around under the turbines every so often looking for carcasses to assess, you know, has a bird or a bat run into the turbine and, and been killed. Um, Hard to do out at sea. Exactly. Um, so there, there are significant questions. What are the impacts to birds and bats likely to be? Um, that icebreaker project is starting to plan to do post and pre and post construction radar monitoring to try and track birds in the area and to install technology on the turbines themselves that will identify collisions with the blades. And 
you know, you, you have to think about how to really analyze those impacts when you're out at sea, because it's more difficult than it is on land. Uh, there's also, as we discussed earlier, some significant concerns about impacts to marine mammals, not just the right whale, um, from noise, from vessel traffic, uh, potentially from changes to the seabed associated with the foundations and the transmission lines. One of the major concerns is impacts to fisheries. And there is a real question, are commercial fishermen going to be able to keep fishing within an operating wind farm? And the answer is not clear. Uh, both BOEM and state regulators have said that they do not expect wind farms to be closed to fishing, but fisheries interests have real concerns. They believe they may lose some fishing grounds, either because of legal restrictions or because of the practical reality of whether they can maneuver their gear through a turbine array. So there has been uh, one prominent lawsuit called the Fisheries Survival Fund case after the lead plaintiff. And a lot like the American Bird Conservancy case involving the Icebreaker Project, that was a NEPA challenge um, to the issuance of the first offshore wind lease off of New York. That lawsuit is also in DC. Um, and in both cases, the plaintiffs are asserting a NEPA claim and saying, you know, there should have been a higher and a higher level analysis done earlier on in the process. And I think we can likely expect some additional challenges from fishing interests once the COPs are approved by BOEM and once these projects start going into constructions and operations. Uh, there was one point last year where BOEM actually did a supplemental environmental impact review analyzing the potential cumulative impacts of all of the different planned offshore wind developments in the New York and New England area with a particular eye towards the impacts to fisheries. And as a result of all of this, the major developers have spent quite a lot of time and effort engaging with the fishing community. Um, you know, but there, there may still be some opposition uh, to some of these projects from fisheries interests. You know, another thing that I feel I've seen in, in some of the reporting, and this is particularly relevant when you think of some of the impacts that these NEPA analyses look at, are also concerns about impacts to tribal resources. Have you seen tribal concerns impacting offshore wind development? Yes, um, there have been some tribal interests raised as um, you know potential challenges to projects. Uh, in fact, in some of the litigation over Cape Wind, one of the plaintiffs as part of the coalition was um, one of the local Native American tribes. Um, there are definitely concerns uh, in talking about offshore wind off of California, particularly on the North Coast, um, that there may be an impact to the important cultural interests and tribal interests. And really one of the lessons of that involvement in Cape Wind was the importance of community engagement and developers talking to the different interested communities and trying to address their concerns to the extent you can. Um, those are those tribal concerns, just like the fisheries issues, are something that are likely to come up in different projects and need to be addressed. Thanks, Ed. And I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about what we've seen in these early days of the Biden administration. It's early in the Biden administration. At the time of recording today, we're in mid-March. We're not even through the first 100 days. But already we've seen some movement in offshore wind from this administration. Um, I guess let's talk about a little bit about that, Ed. What have you seen so far? 
So the big development is the issuance of the final environmental impact statement for Vineyard Wind on March 8th. That's a very big deal. Um, we should see a record of decision approving a COP for Vineyard, hopefully sometime in April of this year. Um, it's also good news that in January of 2021, we saw a draft environmental impact statement come out for South Fork. So the fact that these projects are starting to move forward, and the two of them are, are moving forward in this approval process at the same time, you know, there was a perception that under the Trump administration, BOEM was something of a bottleneck for these projects. And now there's some indication that that bottleneck is starting to open up. There have also been three political appointments already in the Biden administration that are likely to be positive for offshore wind. Um, first is the appointment of Amanda Lefton as the director of BOEM. That is a very positive development. She was the Secretary of Energy and the Environment in New York, and she had a role in developing a new clean energy law in that state. And she is seen as someone who is not only favorable towards renewables generally, but also understands the importance of offshore wind development to New York and New England and the mid-Atlantic states in meeting these very ambitious targets for removing carbon emissions from the grid. I think the real question from that going forward is whether the administration is going to be able to increase the staffing of BOEM so that they can speed up the process of analyzing all of these COPs for the different projects and the development pipeline can keep moving. Another positive appointment is Gina Raimondo as Secretary of Commerce. Um, Gina Raimondo was the governor of Rhode Island when Block Island went into operation. She's been a major proponent of offshore wind and renewables. Um, for example, she issued an executive order as governor committing Rhode Island to 100% renewables by 2030. And last year, she put the state on track to um, issue an RFP for 600 megawatts of offshore wind um, that's expected to come out later in 2021. She is going to be head of the department that oversees NIMFS, um, which again is one of the major agencies that has approval authority for the Endangered Species Act and Marine Mammal, the endangered species and marine mammal impacts that are an important consideration for offshore wind development. There's one other appointment that's gotten a little bit less attention, um, but I think is also going to be positive for offshore wind, and that's Jennifer Granholm as the Secretary of Energy. Um, she was the governor of Michigan in the early 2000s, and when she was governor, the state did a very comprehensive analysis of offshore wind potential in the Great Lakes. In fact, that was one of my first introductions to the topic. Um, and I, I once thought that Michigan, where I grew up, uh, would be a leader in offshore wind. Um, but then, you know, uh, the next election, uh, a Republican governor won and the state decided to go in a different direction. Uh, but the Energy Department has a large amount of research funding that can help speed up clean energy development. In fact, they have given a significant amount of funding to the Icebreaker Project. And it would certainly make sense for some of that to go towards advancing offshore wind technology. And I think uh, given Secretary Granholm's past in looking at that technology, that's something that we might see from the Department of Energy as well. There was another development aside from these appointments that I also think was a, a very positive development for offshore wind. 
Um, and that is the executive order on climate change that the Biden administration issued in January. It specifically called out offshore wind. Um, although it was one of those things where you, you kind of wish the phrasing was a little bit different. So the order directed the Secretary of the Interior to identify steps that can be taken to double renewable energy production from offshore wind by 2030. And the reaction from the industry was basically, so what do you mean by double? Um, you know, right now there's, there's only about 55 megawatts of offshore wind capacity in the United States. So, you know, getting vineyard wind even halfway built would weigh more than double the existing capacity. Um, but if they're talking about doubling the amount of area offshore that is leased for offshore wind development, that would be huge. And that would be an incredible development. Um, so we've certainly seen that the Biden administration is aware of and interested in promoting offshore wind and you know, we're hopeful that they will that we'll see some positive steps in that direction in the near future. So I know this is an impossible question, but what do you anticipate seeing as a development in the federal offshore regulatory space beyond what we've already talked about during this administration? Do you see, I guess, certain actions being more likely than others? Do you see other issues emerging? I'm curious to hear your thoughts there. So the big thing everyone is looking for, and that probably can be expected soon, is progress on the COPs that have already been submitted. If we start seeing more draft and final EISs coming out this year and next year, that will be a very positive development. That means that the pipeline is moving forward and staffing at BOEM is focusing on renewables. Um, frankly, if we start hearing that BOEM is hiring more staffers to work on renewables and work on offshore wind, that would be a very positive development. The other big question for offshore wind going forward is new leasing areas. Uh, a few years back, New York put out an offshore wind master plan uh, that identified potential new lease areas in the New York Bight. And the New York Bight is basically everything south of Long Island out to the edge of the continental shelf. Under the Trump administration, very little progress was made at turning those potential lease areas into actual lease areas, which is the first step in having any, any real offshore wind development. We're now just about to the point where the developers have plans to put up as many turbines as they can fit into the existing lease areas, and they have agreements with the neighboring states to purchase that power. So if we're going to continue the expansion of development that will be necessary to meet these state targets in New England and the Mid-Atlantic, we're going to need some new lease areas. And the new ones that have been identified as potential places for offshore wind leasing in the New York Bight are an obvious place to go next. So if we start seeing that process moving forward in the next year, that would be a very positive development. Um, the other is that I mentioned there are a few lease areas that have been tentatively identified off of California. There's one leasing area off of the north coast of California, and there are two in the central coast. So the central coast lease areas have been a little bit controversial. There are some potential conflicts with Department of Defense operations in the area. 
And that's another area where it would be very helpful for the Biden administration to provide some guidance and hopefully get OM and DOD to work together to find the right places for where offshore winds can be put off of the coast of California. Um, that's actually something that happened in the past with the leasing areas off of Virginia. Those are not too far from a major naval base at Norfolk. So it's certainly possible that if the Biden administration wants DOD and Baum to work together and find a balance, those leasing areas off of California on the central coast could be worked out. Um, Boehm has made it clear they're hoping to move forward with a lease sale off of California this year, 2021. Um, there has been some talk and perhaps hope among the offshore wind community of saying, if you can't get these issues with the Central Coast areas worked out, maybe you could go ahead with the North Coast auction as is. Um, but Boehm has made it clear they really want to do one auction off of California, hopefully soon. And then there's also the hope that Boeing will look at designating some lease areas in the Gulf Coast and off of Hawaii. There's certain, certainly interest in offshore wind development in Hawaii, but it's been moving slowly before now. And there's a hope that the Biden administration will move that forward. Interesting. So my takeaway is that there's still a lot of moving parts to be seen, likely at the federal level. And then also recalling what you said earlier on in our conversation, um, but on the state level, possibly seeing state movements to consolidate permitting as well within state laws with citing certificates and whatnot. Absolutely. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't call out the proposed projects in state waters off of California. Um, and the California State Lands Commission is looking at two possible projects off of Vandenberg Air Force Base in state waters. And that's interesting for several reasons. Um, the main one is the possibility of moving ahead without going through the Boehm leasing process. And that's, that is how the development got started on the East Coast with the Block Island wind farm. And there's some hope there might be a parallel on the West Coast. Well, Ed, before we wrap up for the day, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that has been stewing in your brain that you wanted to share while we're here? <laughs> Um, so I'll share one positive and one hopefully small negative. Up until now, um, offshore wind turbines have all been built on foundations that were driven into the seabed. That technology only really works out to a certain depth. Beyond that, it's just too deep to build these things in a way that doesn't cost way too much to make it economically viable. In the last couple of years, there have been pilot projects of commercial scale turbines off of Europe, one off of Scotland, one off of Portugal, where they built the turbines on floating foundations that were anchored to the seafloor with cables. They've been successful trials so far, and it's really exciting because that opens up a much larger area of the ocean to development. Uh, one of the reasons that the East Coast has moved ahead and the West Coast hasn't is because on the East Coast, the continental shelf is fairly shallow for a long way out, so it's possible to put turbines on the traditional foundations. In California, the seafloor slopes off much more rapidly. There's a rule of thumb that you want the turbines at least 12 miles offshore to minimize the visual impacts, how much you can see them from shore. By the time you get 12 miles off the coast in California, you're in thousands of feet of water. You can't put a turbine there. So the possibility of floating wind uh, 
is really a game changer. It would make offshore wind viable off of California. Um, and there's actually the potential pilot project off of Vandenberg Air Force Base would use floating technology. There's also another pilot project being proposed in the Gulf of Maine for floating wind. Um, if those projects are successful, it would open up the possibility of a lot more leasing areas, not just off of the West Coast, but further offshore on the East Coast, which would be very helpful because the further you get from shore, the stronger and steadier the winds are, and the less conflicts you have with fisheries, who have been some of the major opponents. Um, and that brings me to what hopefully does not end up being a negative development, which is the possibility of litigation. You know, we talked about the lawsuits against the Icebreaker Project and, and the Fisheries Survival Fund lawsuit against the New York lease area. And those of us who have been involved in this sector for a while know that Cape Wind was really litigated to death. Um, so we're going to be paying close attention to these lawsuits. Um, and I think the developers have really learned the lesson to do all of the community engagement that they're doing to help address people's concerns so that you don't get hit with a lawsuit and you're able to have a project that almost everyone is happy with. Well, Ed, thanks so much for all of this. I really appreciate you sitting down and taking the time and sharing all the various things you've been tracking. I mean, I think something that's very apparent from our discussion is that there is a lot going on right now and there's a lot on the horizon that's going to be developing in the near term. And so it's gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out. So thanks again for your time. Um, and I'm just happy to be back here getting to have this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I, I love talking about this stuff in case you couldn't already tell. Since this podcast was recorded, the Biden administration made a major announcement on offshore wind, committing to a goal of developing 30 gigawatts of offshore wind turbines in federal waters nationwide by 2030. The announcement included a goal of reviewing construction and operation plans, or COPS, for at least 16 wind farms by 2025. To put that in context, right now there are 16 leased wind energy areas on the East Coast, so it is effectively a commitment to review a COP for each of those wind energy areas in the next four years. The announcement was also accompanied by the designation of five additional leasing areas in the New York Bight, with a total capacity of nearly 10 gigawatts. These are major steps forward in offshore wind development on the East Coast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.